0: you have your bibles open them to amos chapter 5 and i want to read verse 24 where the prophet amos says i want to see a mighty flood of justice 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 the floods of justice podcast looks at the issues of our day
1: from a biblical perspective without the labels led by reverend dr kevin riggs affectionately known as pastor kevin or rev kev he is the senior pastor of franklin community church and founder of franklin community development in franklin tennessee He is also a published author, teacher, professor, activist, abolitionist, husband, father, grandfather, scuba diver, and coffee connoisseur, which is why this podcast is brought to you from the coffee house at 2nd and Bridge in downtown Franklin. Let's begin the conversation. Welcome, listeners, to a special, special episode. We get to have our very first guest on Floods of Justice. So Pastor Kevin is here. Hello, Kevin. Hey, how you doing, Kevin? I'm, I'm good, I'm good. I'm going to let you in- introduce our special guest commentator uh, who was with you on a recent trip, which is why we are doing this episode. But please welcome Associate Pastor Luis Sura. Kevin, go ahead and tell us a little bit about Luis.
0: Yeah, this will go down in history. The first yeah. guest yes. on uh, Floods of Justice, Luis Sura. Uh, Luis... We made sure he was properly caffeinated before we uh, That's good. That's can't good. turn the mics on. <laughs> well, Luis has been at our church for several years now. He's... Um, He's associate pastor in charge of outreach and uh, runs uh, our housing program, Jeremiah Twenty Nine Seven, and, uh, and then has his own nonprofit, um, Better Options, that uh, really works on immigration issues. And so uh, it's good to have him here, and it was good to be with him last week. Uh, we, the two of us, went to El Paso, Texas, which is a lot farther away than I thought it was. Yeah. Um, when you you know it was a long flight there, but we were there for an immigration uh, conference called Voices from the Desert. Um, it was sponsored by uh, Christian Community Development Association and uh, so it 's a border town El Paso's on one side, Mexico, mexico's on the other side and uh, so with all the immigration issues going on on our southern border, it was good just to go down there and and learn. We heard some good speakers, um, you know government official from Mexico was there talking about things from their perspective uh, and then we toured some shelters on the on the uh, Juarez side of the border and then shelters on the uh, El Paso side um, had a conversation with uh, Border Patrol, and uh, just just a really really good trip, insightful, educational, um, convicting, challenging, inspiring, uh, all those all those things. So it, it was it was well worth uh, the time uh, to go down there and see see for ourselves. Yeah. Now, Luis, you uh, can you give us a little
1: bit of background on uh, on you personally, and then kind of your your role as a servant here in Franklin, Tennessee, and how that brought you. The relevance of how that brought you down to, uh, to El Paso this last
2: weekend. Sure, sure. Uh, first of all, I want to thank uh, Pastor Kevin. Pastor, thank you very much. And uh, um, it's always fun work with you. But your side, and uh, those challenges you say, we've, we we. Uh, uh, see those challenges every day not only in El Paso where you were Pastor Kevin <laughs> but it's fun and thank you very much for being the the first guest. I mean, have you ever yeah. been on a podcast before? I have yeah okay, I okay. have a couple of times. have but uh,
1: <laughs> you're the most experienced. No one no, no
2: no no uh, I don't have no experience but I had <laughs> a couple of times and uh, I never worked well anyway so I hope this will this will yeah well i uh, like he say uh, I'm a special church planter and I came here uh, to Tennessee back from Texas because I live in Nashville for years i went to texas came back 2007 and i um, i was a search planter i plant a couple of churches features here in, in, in middle tennessee and then i believe it was 2014 2015 when i joined uh Franklin community church which has been a, a very uh fun journey and experience working uh in the community and uh, try just to ministry in the community which is uh it, which is a large way where you can ministry here uh, but anyway, uh, been working with Pastor Kevin on the last uh, few years. It's, it's been a challenge to reach to people that are not church. That's 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 the case. We are church. We are ministry people. They're not in the church. Yeah. Uh, not only with homeless, but everybody, multicultural. Uh, now well, people this- may not be
1: aware of, of how many what, what the Hispanic popula- population is in Franklin. Can you let us know? Kind
2: of yeah, we, we are uh, still on the mi- – well, we're the majority of the minorities right now because we already passed the African-American population here in Franklin, which is the case in the whole United States. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we still um, don't have the voice here in Franklin. We, don't have, we are the majority of the minority, but we don't have the voice in Franklin. So nobody speaks for Hispanics.
1: Okay.
0: And I think it's roughly about 10,000 Hispanics. Okay. Yeah. Franklin, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Franklin, it's about 75,000 in the city limits. Uh, the county is about 250,000, 270,000. Um, uh, so in the city yeah. of Franklin, about 10,000 um, Hispanics and about 8,000 African Americans. So that's where the difference. Well, uh, the state about. of
2: Tennessee uh, has probably about 30, 3,500 to 400,000 uh, Hispanics. Uh, just the metro Nashville metro area, um, probably 150,000 uh, Hispanics. Yeah. Wow! I live here and I didn't even realize. Yeah,
1: the disparity was that big. Yeah, but the population is is that is that big. Um, so tell us about what you're kind of doing in the in the community.
2: Oh, well, this is what we're doing through Better Options, and uh, uh, with the help of our church, we are introducing newcomers or new arrivals to. Uh, 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 tennessee in a culture helping them to adapt to a culture that they don't know uh they, they, there is a lot of barriers not only language but uh it can be color barriers too uh a lot of people arriving arriving from um venezuela right now and um these people they need they need a lot of help they need to they don't speak english they don't they don't know where they are uh so we are trying just to uh, helped him to adopt to a new culture great
1: so you 've already been in, in the trenches helping the Hispanic community in Franklin. You guys decide okay we 're going to head to El Paso last weekend uh, what was What was kind of the intent and goal of your trip last weekend?
0: yeah, it was really interesting because I, I I got an email a few months back about the conference coming up, and I went back and forth on on one of I wanted to go, but then it 's like okay it, it, there 's an expense involved obviously in going and so kind of going back and forth on uh, uh, you know, what, what is this? Is, is it going to be worth it? Um, I've, I've said to myself for um, a couple of years I would love to go to the border and just see things uh, for myself, even though it's foolish to think in two days you see everything, but, but just to go and experience um, a little bit of, about what's going on in the border. And, uh, and so that for me, that was, it was like I want to go see for myself, but then I also want to go see um, what are some opportunities for our church uh, to get uh, um, to get involved a little bit more on immigration issues not just not just in Tennessee but just uh, you know where, wherever we can and so in my mind it's like okay this will be an exploratory trip I'll go down and see if um, you know learn for myself and then also see where where we can uh, where we can fit in and what and what we can do as a church and uh, in in my own mind I wasn't going to go without Luis I mean because he's got the experience already and I'll I'll tell you you know Luis went with me to Honduras. Um, few years ago, and then down on El Paso. It's really, really good to see Luis um, being able to minister and watch him minister in his own language instead of, instead of in English and see how he connects with, uh, with the Hispanic population as a whole. I've seen a little bit of it here in Franklin, but I remember in Honduras thinking, man, he's, he's right at home. Yeah, uh, he's you know, in he's in, Yeah, and then the same way down in, uh, um, down in El Paso, especially when we were talking with the, uh, some of the migrants on the Mexico side. And just listening to him talk, even though I didn't know what he was saying, but just seeing that connection and the passion, and 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 just watching him uh, do ministry um, instead of instead of in English, watching him do ministry in 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 uh, in Spanish and with Hispanics was was really really good. And so, but for me again, it was just I wanted to educate myself, I wanted to kind of, and I wanted to see for myself some things, but then also uh, praying about okay, God, as a church, what can we do? How can we be involved? Now, Luis, you have a, a family
2: connection to Juarez as well, right? So I have friends. I don't have family in Juarez. Oh, I thought you I, said your sister Well, was. my sister used to live there back in probably about 30 years ago. Oh, okay, but, okay. Uh, we still have friends there. Yeah. Um, I'm not very connected to them, but uh, uh, just to see the city, it makes me feel like, uh, um, you know, we, we need to do something to, to uh, help in that area yeah there is a lot of things going on up there and yeah my sister used to live there 30 years ago and I remember crossing or or coming from Mexico to United States and uh, Juarez wasn't even like that it was it was it was beautiful back then the way he looks right now is total destroying wow wow
1: well so you uh you know you've heard the plight of the immigrant here uh locally and then you had a chance to go to uh El Paso and Juarez what, uh, what was shocking about that or enlightening, um, your first
2: reactions to, to kind of seeing things firsthand? Well, uh, my first reaction was, to, okay, we always complain about uh, crossing the border illegal, and we always complain, uh, or the United States is complaining about uh, having a lot of illegals here. Uh, but the problem is that uh, a lot of people cross the border illegal because the United States is not allowing it to become legal. <laughs> uh these uh, people that were on the other side of the border they were trying to do the right thing, but uh maybe pastor will share a little bit uh, more about uh, the experience they had um, and they were rejecting them to to come legal so uh, these people have been treated in, in in Mexico and they've been uh they kill all their families, so they're fleeing to to United States to escape all this uh, persecution so what are their choices go back to their their hometown to get killed or cross the border illegal maybe they're going to get killed crossing the border too so there's there's two choices and they had to choose they didn't allow me to become to enter the united states legal so i'm going to try illegal now to see if i can make it so those are the two choices and it's difficult to to make there we meet uh um, when uh, when we were at the shelter in Juarez, um, I met with this, uh, uh, it was probably about six uh, people from Michoacan. And I, and I asked them. I mean, uh, how is it going? What are you guys doing? He said, well, we're going back to town. I said, why? Well, they rejected us. They didn't allow us to cross, you know, to become, you know, to uh, apply for asylum. So they're going back, and they're going to get killed over there. That was their choice. They choose, they choose to go back. Now, Dove, it was four couples that we have on the panel. Those couples are gonna still trying to go one more time.
0: Yeah, it, it's for my taking. Since we've been back, um, I've done a little bit of research. Um, like I read some articles that predated the the fence, the fence across that separates El Paso from Juarez, about twenty feet tall. It's, it's metal and like kind of like rebar crossing, so it's a, I mean, it's a very sturdy fence. Um, but it wasn't put up uh, until 2008, and so for all those many years before, um, Juarez and, and El Paso were kind of like twin cities, and people just went back and forth, and the, there didn't seem to be an issue. And some of these articles that predate when the wall was, when when the fence was put up, was saying, you know, look, if you put that fence up, it's going to divide us, not unite us, and Juarez will will suffer. Juarez will go into um, uh, will will. It'll hurt the economy, and it'll get bad, and and that's what's happened with the with the border there. Um, and then everything's bottlenecked into certain locations to get in, but then the cartel has is able to control that side of the border and and uh, cause you know they can they can keep people there. Violence erupted. There was a three or four year period um, where Juarez was uh, you know led the world in number of murders, um, and then when we walk through Juarez, it's just all depleted buildings, uh, graffiti, and it used to not be that way. And so everything they said was going to happen, when we put that there, it, it made things worse. And so he, this is really interesting. I, <clears throat> as I was doing some research, um, El Paso, Texas, is, um, has been voted the safest city in the United States. Okay? And then on the other side of the fence, Juarez is one of the most dangerous cities in the world. Suck. Yeah. And, uh, and it wasn't like that until the, until the fence went up. Uh, before the fence went up, it was uh, I sat on the plane going down with a guy in his sixties who grew up in El Paso, and he was telling me you know stories about he he 's u s citizen grew up in el paso but but just how they would just go back and forth you know all the time and it just and everybody it was just it was like one big city, and now it's just incredible but then the people who are suffering are the people who are trying to come here legally uh, most of the people that you read about in the paper um, that are you know that are in the detention centers and then in the shelters. Are people who um, have come to the United States and turned themselves in at the border to ask for asylum, which is legal. That's the legal way to do it, and and that's the proper way to do it. And then they get put, and then they get put in ICE detention, um, which they call the ice chest um, because of just the coldness and how they're treated and and how they're mistreated, um, awaiting for their if they're going to get asylum or not. Now, a few of those, if will be released to the United States to await their asylum hearing. But most of them, uh, once they get their paperwork cleared, then, then they go back to Juarez to wait for their court dates. And they have nowhere to go in Juarez. They would have family members in the United States. You know, and, and so in years past, what would happen is you're in detention, you're, you've asked for asylum, you get a date, and if you have family members in the U.S., then you're released to your family members in the U.S. to wait uh, for your court hearing. And, um, and studies have shown that around 85 percent Eighty-five to ninety percent of the people show up for their court hearing, so this idea that they disappear into the population is just not true. Which is one of the things that some of the politicians want to tell us, you know. But eighty-five to ninety percent of them will show up for their court date uh, from the United States, but then they're sent back to Mexico on the border, and they have to stay in shelters because they're basically homeless. And all of them have children, multiple children. The number of children in the shelters is just, um, you know, phenomenal. And so these are people who were leaving their countries, some of them Mexico, but um, El Salvador. I was surprised to hear how many Cubans um, because are coming through are trying to seek asylum that way because they can no longer um, the previous administration got rid of the, the Cuban law or whatever it was that if a, if a Cuban um, reached dry ground, if they placed their feet on the United States, they automatically got asylum. Um, and so that was stopped in the previous administration. I think it was just kind of a Uh, a meeting between the two countries when President Obama was trying to open up trade again with with Cuba, and that was kind of one of the concessions we gave. And so since they can't do it that way anymore, they're going into Central America and coming up um, that way. And they're coming from political persecution. The one Cuban family that we left with, they were able to get out of Cuba two days before he was going to be arrested and and go to jail because he had spoken out against the government. Um, And so two days before he was going to be arrested, they... They got out and they made their way up to Mexico and then were denied asylum and are back in Juarez because they're, they're appealing it. So they're waiting, but they've been there for 10 months, basically in a homeless shelter um, with you know nowhere to go, no, not knowing what's going to happen. There was one couple that was, came from El Salvador that was leaving gang violence. The husband had been shot um, because he wasn't paying his gang tax. So he he and his family they left and get to the border and he shows them his scar and everything and says look I I'm yeah. been persecuted and no and then there was a family from Mexico um, who the cartel wanted their land apparently his family owned a large ranch um, and uh, the cartel wanted the land and started killing members of his family and they'd killed four or five of his uncles and cousins and so he finally took his family and left the cartel doesn't care once you leave because now they got your land. And so they presented all the paperwork to the, at the border of how their family has been killed over the land and everything, and it was like, no. And it, it seemed like I remember somebody saying that only about 2% of the people who asked for asylum get it, you know, and it's arbitrary, it's yeah. like no one knows, no one knows what the standard is, and, and uh, even people on the U.S. side who are working with the immigrants would tell you that, that it's almost like whatever mood the judge is in that day, uh, he'll... You know, if he likes you or doesn't like you, or she likes you or doesn't like you, then they decide who gets in, who gets out, and then their only alternative then is they can turn to the cartel, and for eight thousand dollars, the cartel will take them down out into the desert where there is no wall, and uh, release them, and they walk in, uh, but then they don't know where they are, and they could die in the desert trying to find their way uh, to civilization. So that's their only choices. You try it legally first, and if that doesn't work, then you, if you got the money, then you go the cartel route. Um, <clears throat> which is extremely dangerous. But the bottom line was, at least the way I, the way I looked at it, um, the people who we hear about who want to come in and do us harm, they're not coming through those checkpoints. Sure. They're coming in illegally anyway. And so, and so all, all we're doing is hurting uh, the people who, who want to come here legally and who want just a better life for their families. And then um, some of the stories that we heard from the uh, immigrants of, their trip up to the border, but then while they're in ICE detention, is is what we had read in the paper about how they were just mistreated, um, you know, abused. Um, treat, they just kept saying treated like animals, treated like animals. And and there was one family who had some children taken away uh, from them. And uh, and and when they were asked by us, you know, what's the one thing you would like for us to tell people back home uh, to a to a person, it was. Please, just tell everyone we don't expect it to be treated any different than anybody. We don't expect it to be treated like kings and queens. But we do want to be treated with dignity and respect. Just treat us like human beings because that's not our experience with, um, with the detention centers. So out of everything they could have told us to say, it was like just, we just want to be treated with respect. We're just trying to um, do better for our children.
2: When he was sharing that with us, it reminds me... Back in the 80s, um, when I was crossing, I was, uh, um, was rigging my mom uh, to, to the United States, and um, uh, she, had a, she got a visa. Uh, so we went to the border and asked for permission to, to re-enter the United States, and uh, she needed a water bill to prove that she was just going on a trip to visit her her, her kids or visiting us. Only a water bill. And she uh, the, the officer rejected my mom because she didn't have a water bill. And I talked to the officer and I said, listen, she's my mother. She's just coming to visit my brothers and she's with me. I'm, I'm a resident of the United States. She said, well... She doesn't have enough proofs to go enter to the United States. I said, I have, oh, that's her name. I, I showed him everything except the water bill that he was asking for. My mother, she's an old woman, and she, and, and she went like, please, um, we have a saint in Mexico not doing it for me, doing it for your mother. <laughs> you <know? laughs> and and please, the guy got so mad. Yeah. He got so mad. I said, woman, you better get out of here. You, you can be arrested. I mean, that was so mean. That was something, and I, I won't tell you the rest of the story, but that, I, I experienced that yeah. myself with my mother. Uh, well, I mean, we hear the stories,
1: and it sounds like it's not just that they're in search of a better life, but actually a life, like their life back home is
0: at, at risk. Yeah, I mean, they, yeah, they can't go back home. Um, I, you know
1: what the percentage is on, on some that maybe just be uh, – wanting to immigrate for, uh, you know, a better life versus the asylum seekers. Like, do we know what the...
0: Yeah, well, I think most of the and people... nothing
1: wrong with seeking a better life. It's just a... a...
0: Well, I think most of the people who are presenting themselves legally um, are, are fleeing some type of violence and persecution, um, and uh, and they're just simply asking uh, for asylum. Now, what was interesting is that the conference, um, Juarez and Juarez, You may know this. I mean, I know Luis does, but I didn't really recognize this. Juarez is a city in the state of Chihuahua. And so uh, a state government official came and talked to us in El Paso. And um, he bragged. First of all, he bragged tremendously about how the churches in Mexico and mainly evangelical churches stepped up and started housing all these um, immigrants when they were started to be sent back there. Uh, But then... Juarez, um, Mexico tries to encourage them to stay in Juarez and and seek a better life. He's, you know, there, he tells them there's job opportunities, there's entrepreneurship opportunities. Uh, stay stay here uh, because and he said we welcome everybody. We don't care. We welcome everybody. And uh, you know, so our fence says you're not welcome. <clears throat> but Juarez is saying, please stay here and help us. We'll, we'll be we can. And he gave he gave the figures of the number of people yeah. and then the number of people who live in Mexico. As a whole, and so I was like, so this is to say that you can't handle that many people, and it's the same way. Three hundred, three hundred million people in the United States, and you're talking a hundred thousand people. That, that we can absorb that. I mean, that's not going to hurt anything. And and if they're wanting to make, if we give them a <clears throat> a way to become a citizen, um, then they'll become contributing members, you know, to society. Um, and so this government official bragged about the churches um, and the and the openness to Mexico. Uh, to receive um, the people who, uh, who aren't from Mexico because, again, at the border there's Africans, uh, there's Venezuelans, there's Cubans, there's Brazilians, uh, then there's all the Central American countries, and then uh, people from Mex- other parts of Mexico that are, that are steeped in violence as well, and they're just saying, you know, stay here. But then one thing he said that um, has just resonated with me since I've been back was he said that in, the, in Mexico um, there's no such thing as illegal immigrant. Uh, that's not a word. You're not illegal. There's, there's a registered immigrant and non-registered immigrant. But there's no such thing as illegal immigrant because uh, being a person is not illegal, you right. know. And, um, and I think, you know, terminology does make a difference. If you look at somebody as illegal, then they're criminal. Where if you just say, well, they're not registered, well, they just haven't filled out the paperwork. And, and that, just that terminology, um, our terminology dehumanizes people. When you say that they're illegal for just being yeah. um, whereas just you're not registered let's get you registered that's where well, you're, you're still human now we just need to help you get uh, the paperwork and so the idea that in in mexico there's no such thing as illegal as an illegal immigrant was just kind of something that stuck with me
2: you surprised me that they were directing themselves as a migrants these <laughs> okay. people they are they're, they're yeah, uh, they would say migra- just mi- migrants migrants yeah, yeah. they're migrants they never i never heard the illegal world in el paso or water they're yeah. migrants and not even
0: immigrants; they just the migrants. migrants was the, yeah, was yeah. the word was, was the official about, word. Yeah.
2: Now, I want to I want to say something about the crossing the border I- illegal. I'm going to use a word illegal sure. because uh, it is very important. In in Pastor Ken mentioned about uh, the uh, cost to cross the border illegal, eight thousand dollars. That's what uh, that was my average for the last four or five years. But when I hear from from the officer at the border, I was like, I was right. <laughs> Wow. Now, that's the average to cross the border, okay? If you come into Tennessee illegally, you, you get to Tennessee and um, you by yourself. So you own those $8,000 because you don't have $8,000 to cross the border. When you got to Tennessee, you had to find a job. You had to find a place to stay. And most likely, you're going to find a place to stay with your friend, or your cousin, your uh, one or your relatives, And but you had to pay rent. You got to Tennessee, you had to pay rent, and you had to buy a car. You had to buy... Um, uh, you have to send money to Mexico after you, because you have a family in Mexico or wherever you're coming from. You have to send that money, so it's going to take you probably about three or four years to pay eight thousand dollars, because you have to sustain yourself here. Now, if you live in Franklin, you're going to have at least you're going to have to pay six hundred dollars a rent if you live with somebody else. If you live with your cousin, now after you stayed a month for uh, for a, uh, about a month with your cousin or your or your friend, um, uh pretty much likely you're going you're to be moving out because your cousin is it's not going to take you for a whole month. Yeah. So he's going to have to find a place, a truck, or a car to move. So it's going to cost him probably about uh, $20,000 for the first the first year. Can you just imagine? When is, when is he going to go back to his family? It's going to take years to go back to his family. Can you just imagine if the, if the government will decide, okay, I'm – you know eight thousand dollars, I mean, why I don't help this gentleman and give him a resident? So uh, he only can pay like you know he contribute to the economy in, in the United States. Eight thousand dollars, cross the border legally, you know, sure. work here in the United States, help his family in Mexico. One day he's going to go back because he's going to find it easy to go back to Mexico, <laughs> yeah. yeah or or to his uh, uh, country or original you know, country he's coming from. yeah. The, the economics of it, the numbers. it's
0: uh, Yeah, the economics one. of it is is, is, uh, is really just incredible. But, the, you know, I don't, I don't really know what all the solutions are, yeah. you know. Um, but I think that there's a better way to do it than what we're doing it now. And, uh, and the bottom line is regardless of what we have, regardless of what our laws may or may not be, um, we, are, we are to treat people with dignity and respect and to treat them as human beings and not make them feel uh, like their animals, and not make them feel like they 're doing something wrong, because they have followed our laws by coming to the border and presenting themselves and and saying, "I want to seek asylum, and here 's my evidence, and here 's what i 'm going through that's they are doing everything right um when when they come uh, and they do that, and then for our country to treat them like criminals when they're trying to do the right thing and then to dehumanize them in the process is uh is to me just is, it's unacceptable, and so it's like, okay, I don't really know what to do, but what we're doing is, uh, is not the right thing um, yeah. at all, because everyone deserves to be treated. And here's, here's a, a verse of scripture. Um, you know, we're about to take a break, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So here's a verse of scripture. It's from the contemporary English Bible. It's Deuteronomy 10:18 and 19, and it says this: "He, speaking to God, God enacts justice for orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them." food and clothing that means you must also love immigrants because you were immigrants in egypt so there we have it the bible tells us you have to love these people you have to love immigrants and they're not they're not illegal not just tolerate not just tolerate (laughs) and love and welcome this you know I, i was thinking jesus says welcome the stranger and and that fence and now you know the president wants to build a wall but that fence or that border says you are not welcome you know it's the exact opposite of what uh, jesus tells us uh that we are to be doing yeah well you had
1: touched a little bit earlier on how the mexican government was was bragging about how the church was responding in juarez uh when we come back let's let's talk about what was being done right there what we can do in america and kind of your reactions on the the church's response to all this The Floods of Justice podcast is brought to you by the Coffee House at Second and Bridge. Since 1904, they have stood at the corner of Second and Bridge Street in the heart of downtown Franklin. Their house-made menu items are crafted with care and love. Baked goods are made from scratch each morning, and specialty coffee is always ground and brewed fresh. So come on down, wander the rooms, join us at the coffee bar, and find a space to enjoy the food, the drink, and maybe even a recording of the Floods of Justice podcast. All right, welcome back to Floods of Justice. We were talking about uh, Pastor Kevin and Pastor Luis's experience down in El Paso and Juarez, Mexico, um, and the, the ice chest uh, experience down there with the detention centers. Um, but we've shifted into talking about the church's response, and you had mentioned that the church in Juarez was was actually doing really well. Can you tell us about what you saw?
0: Yeah, well, Well. First of all, what the government official from Mexico told us is that they, would, they don't know that what they would have done when this crisis hit um, uh, a few years ago where, where you had this unbelievable amount of people coming through the border seeking asylum um, and then getting sent back uh, to Juarez. Um, the churches in Mexico, and he even mentioned mostly evangelical churches, uh, stepped up and started housing these, uh, these migrants in their, in their churches. And at one time, there may have been 30 or 40 churches that were doing this. And, um, and we're doing just an unbelievable job. And so then the state of Chihuahua decided to build their own uh, shelter for these people. And this representative said he went to them and said, why are you going to do that? Why are you going to spend all these millions of dollars building a shelter? Why don't we take that same money and resource the churches that are already doing it? You know, and, and one lady had petitioned the government before then to say, look, we've got all these kids in these shelters. We need to make sure they get education. And so they started schools for the immigrant children. You know, and that was through the churches as well. So he was like, why are we going to spend all these all this money when we still, when the churches are doing it, let's resource the churches. Well, the government want to do what the government always does, and so they built their own center. And so now, uh, what he said, if I remember right, there's like 15 shelters in Juarez, and 12 of them are still operated by the churches, um, I guess, when the government, you know, stepped in. But it's not safe, because um, some of the churches experienced violence, where cartel would come in and, and uh, rob them, and the, and everything. There was one pastor that we met, um, and his church still does a shelter uh, in Juarez, uh, but he said the cartel came in his shelter, and so in his church with, with guns and, and threatened everybody and told the pastor to stop, or he stopped housing these people, or, or he was going to get killed, and the pastor more or less said, you just guys need to leave, we're not stopping, you know, just said, no, we're not stopping, and, and, uh, and they backed down, but then he said a few weeks later he did have to leave the country for about 10 days just to let things calm down. But the church is still operating the shelter, and every day at any moment he knows he could be killed for doing that. But yet they're still, you know, they're still doing that, which is something. And, so, and then at first, on the El Paso side, at first, uh, the churches were doing, stepped up and did, were doing really good. There's, still, there's one shelter in, my, in El Paso that's been operated for over 40 years, and it's, it's mainly through the Catholic Church, but the evangelical churches have come alongside them and helped. As well, we toured their 125,000-square-foot um, warehouse they have as one of their three shelters. Wow. You know, that's on the El Paso side. But, and so the churches are doing, I think for the most part, the churches even in El Paso are doing what they think they can do. But there's one story told that was really disheartening. Um, there was a church in El Paso, one of the first churches that stepped up to house uh, the migrants. And it was a small church of about 40 people. Um, and they won the house. Uh, within a few months, that church of forty had gone down to just two people. Most people in the church left because they didn't want they didn't want the they didn't want the uh, the immigrants there. So then the only people who were showing up at service were the people from the shelter. And So that kind of broke my heart. It's like, well, wait a minute, they're not, yeah. you know, <laughs> that, that's not how you respond. Yeah. But yet in my mind, I think, well, there's a lot of church. I can see a lot of churches kind of being like that. Like, okay, this is okay for a little while. But, you know, come Sunday, what are we going to do? They can't stay in the auditorium for us to have church. Whereas in Mexico, they would just push all the mattresses to the side on Sunday morning and everybody have church and then bring all the beds back in. You, you know, so it, it's, it's conflicting because then studies or, uh, you know, surveys in the United States show that evangelical Christians are the ones who are most opposed uh, to um, any type of path to citizenship or, or um, you know, like they have the hardest stand uh, about immigration than, than, than the United States as a whole, the the most strict uh, uh, guidelines come from evangelical Christians about what the border should be like and everything. Which is like that's not that's not what we that's not what we're about. Yeah. You know, again, we are to welcome the stranger. And there's a part of me that says, you know what, I may not be able to change the laws on the border, and so I'm not really worried. You know, I'm worried about that, but but regardless of what the laws are, once that immigrant Presents themselves in our community as Christians, we're obligated to take care of them. There's no, it doesn't matter if they're legal, illegal, or whatever. If they come seeking food, shelter, pl- you know, clothes, those kind of things, it doesn't matter what the laws say. The Bible says, take care of them.
1: Well, it's, it sounds ironic to me to, because you picture the you know who is who is the immigrant, the white evangelical, and if you've got a Native American sitting mm-hmm. here going. Really? You're going to point a finger at them and you look at the people in El Paso or Juarez are like, this used to be ours. And you're pointing the finger at us as the immigrant and telling us we are not
0: welcome. Yeah, this is our land. Yeah. And that's and that's to me again, that's what that fence has done because it's that, you know, that used to be Mexico. Yeah, that's that's my land.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It used to be my land and I can consider that my land. And when people ask me, go back to your country, hey. You go back to your country. I'm in my country. This is my land. I mean, it used to be Texas, New Mexico, California. I mean, it used to be ours, you know. So I feel comfortable talking to people about uh, whose country is this, you know. And Pastor Kevin was talking about uh, the church that uh, left because of the immigrants. I I have some consideration here, in in frankly, here in Tennessee, how— You read the Bible every day. You have Bible studies every day, everywhere. Every coffee shop has full of Bible uh, studies every single day. In this coffee shop, there is, I believe there is a couple of groups already doing the Bible, but if they see me outside, they're going to point fingers on me and say, why don't you go back to your country after reading the Bible? Yeah. (laughs) So this is kind of, um, you know, it, it is something to think about. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of
1: cooperation were you seeing between the U- U.S. side and the Mexico side? Church-related, governmental, just average citizen—did you have a chance to talk with yeah, some of the th- Americans? Yeah,
0: but I think I think, and this is just kind of true in any country. It seemed like that most of the cooperation um, between churches—you know—if you got most of the time, the cooperation is through a third party, so a, an NGO, a non-governmental organization, or a nonprofit. So I can't think of the names right now, but it's basically two nonprofits that put on. Th- these two nonprofits are part of the CCDA movement, but they kind of hosted the conference. And these nonprofits are both faith-based, evangelical-based, uh, and they work with churches both in the United States and in and in Wara. So they, you know, so they're crossing the border every day, going back and forth, and, and trying to. Find, okay, here's what the shelter over here needs. So here's a church over here who wants to help, and they're and they're connecting them. Um, unless it's a denominational thing, you know, like a, you know, like the, the shelter we went to in Juarez was Anglican. And, uh, and I would assume, I didn't ask, but I would assume if they're Anglican, then there's Anglican churches in the U.S. who are, who are helping support them. But, you know, as far as, like, if, it, if you got a, a Baptist church here uh, and they know there's a Baptist church over there, they may help that. But, but usually the help is going to go through, uh, through an NGO who's networking everybody. And I don't know if that's necessarily good or bad. It's just kind of the way, that's just kind of the way it works. So I'm, I'm going to support this church down here through this this nonprofit. And then over years, like I mean for us in Honduras, that's how it was for years. Now we've kind of gone beyond that because we built some relationships with churches in Honduras. And so as a church we can help directly to that church. But for many, many years it was working through, you know, world gospel outreach was kind of our avenue into the country kind of thing. And so and so there seems to be cooperation at least on that on that end, you know, working like that. Now on the El Paso side, the number of churches and congregations um, that are assisting Annunciation House, which is the uh, they've been doing it for forty some odd years. That's the Catholic part of the Catholic charities, uh, but now everybody's coming alongside them to help to help in that regard. But they receive that shelter in the United States receives people who have gotten asylum uh, and been released in the United States to wait for their court hearing, and so they they would go to the Annunciation House for the most part, at least the shelter we went to and would be there in that shelter from anywhere from 3 to 5 days and basically it was the 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 nonprofits helped the people in that shelter um, get connected to their family member and then get transportation you know help them with plane tickets and bus and bus fares or whatever to get to where they need to go uh, with their family while they're waiting for their for their court hearing yeah.
2: so actually the government is not doing nothing to help the immigrants cross the border because okay. uh, we have, and I, that, 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 that's the thing that I like, that churches were connected on the other side and this side of the United States. On the other side, there were so many shelters, uh, what, 12 shelters, 15 shelters. Uh, and then this side was three shelters. They're waiting for the people to help them to connect them to their families, like you say. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's, that's a good connection. And if the churches can work that way, if all the churches will work that way, I mean, we had a better life. We had a better people here. You
1: know? Yeah. So am, am I hearing, you know, I don't know what the statistics were, but down there, what, what was the percentage in on the Mexican side of those seeking asylum and immigration that were Mexican residents versus other countries?
2: Go ahead. I, well, I can speak for that because Mexico, uh, only three states of Mexico can um, apply for, uh, for um, uh, asylum. Okay. Not everybody in Mexico can do it. I think it's Michoacan um it's, uh, guerrero and i don't know if durango but there's three states uh but they have so out of out of the whole mexico only three states so it's not many people are seeking for asylum uh, here in the united states now we have uh this guy uh one of the officers uh a border patrol officer he was telling about uh, he don't he does he doesn't see many mexican people Crossing the border, that was That was a surprise for me. See, the majority are coming from Central America. Even Brazilians in, in African America, uh, Africans yeah. are, are crossing the border.
0: Yeah, and those the, again. The, what surprised, for whatever reason, what surprised me was Cubans, because um, I, I I just figured Cubans, people from Cuba, were still getting on the rafts and and, yeah, uh, short and coming. Out. But uh, but uh, they, they're not. They're now they're they're you know it's really really easy to fly into Central. A Central okay. American country, okay. so, they, so they'll fly into Central America and then just uh, make their way up, make their way up front. They, they were, so they didn't give a percentage and say this percentage is, is this nationality, this, but the majority of the people coming are coming from Central America, uh, would be the majority of them. But, but they've seen an increase in Cubans, uh, an increase in Africans coming that way, and then the challenge for them was the increase in Brazilians uh, coming up because Brazil is a different language um you know and so the, and so now we got to now they got to make sure they have portuguese interpreters around uh from that i guess the same thing would be true but some of the african countries would be english speaking but um but um and then of course venezuela and of course if a, right now if if colombia or venezuela gets to to the border there's a really good chance they'll get uh the asylum because of what's going on in their countries but um because it's political in nature, I think what happens is um, a lot of this violence is cartel and gang related, and it's not political. You know, then uh, for whatever reason, it, it doesn't really it doesn't really matter. You know, or again, the, it's up to the judge, to say, the, up to the judge to say yes or no, and the vast majority of the times are saying no, and unfortunately, um, and, and again, to go this one person was talking. Um, about how they were treated in the detention centers and then got denied asylum, and now they're stuck in Juarez. And somebody did ask them if they were going to try again, and he said no um, because he didn't want to put his family through the detention centers again. And i I kind of sarcastic, I know, but I kind of leaned over to Luis and said our evil plan is working. You know, and so unfortunately... And there may be some people who hear this who see that as good news. Well, yeah, we let's make it as difficult as possible and as hard as possible because then that will deter people from uh, from coming in. And uh, and it's like okay, but that's not what Jesus says. I mean, that's not what that's not what the Bible teaches. And so don't fool yourself and say that we're a Christian country if we continue to do these things that are uh, that are non Christians. And so. And so, where, you know, where is the solution uh, from that? And i might got some stuff to read. I don't know if you want to go to that part. Sure, or not, sure. But, but, you know, there, there was a group that talked for a little bit. Um, they had a workshop, but we toured the borders instead of going to the workshop. But um, it's um, Evangelical Immigration Table. So Evangelical Immigration Table. I think it's .com, but if you Google that, Evangelical Immigration Table, their website will come up. And they're, they're trying to petition the government um, to make changes and this guy who, who gave a short speech was encouraging us to go to the website if you go to the website you'll see a link where you can sign a petition because he he had a u.s congressman tell him if he could get five hundred five thousand signatures he would he would try to bring this up on the on the senate floor and so that's an action step Immig- evangelical immigration table look you'll see it it's on the front page where it says add your signature Um, And then if they can get 5,000, the center has said that. But here's what that statement uh, says. Um, It says, um, our national immigration laws have created a moral, economic, and political crisis in America. Initiatives to remedy this crisis have led to polarization and name-calling in which opponents have misrepresented each other's positions as open borders and amnesty versus deportation of millions. This false choice has led to an unacceptable political stalemate at the federal level at a tragic uh, human cost. We urge our nation's leaders to work together with the American people to pass immigration reform that embodies these key principles and that will make our nation proud. And here are the principles. Respects the God-given dignity of every person. Protects the unity of the immediate family. Respects the rule of law. Guarantees secure national borders ensures fairness to taxpayers, establishes, establishes a path toward legal status and or citizenship for those who qualify and who wish to become uh, permanent residents. So just kind of common sense because some of those principles talk about don't take kids away from their parents, you know, and just treat everybody with dignity and respect, but have a path uh, where people can uh, uh, can become a part of our society instead of always outside. And, and then there's another statement. This is a group uh, called the AND, A-N-D, the AND Campaign. It's an evangelical um, activist group. And uh, if you Google AND Campaign, again, I can't remember if it's .com or .org, but just the AND, A-N-D, Campaign. And uh, they put out several months ago, and I've been reading over this lately, but they put out what they call their 2020 presidential election statement. Um, So kind of like a voter's guide, but not really, but just statements uh, from that. And uh, another time we'll talk about the elections. But um, in that statement uh, on immigration, here's what they say about immigration. It says, the Trump administration has failed to treat undocumented immigrants with dignity and care, especially at the U.S.-Mexico border. That's where we were. So, All right. Um, In light of God's special concern uh, for the immigrant and the sojourner, we are deeply dissatisfied with the federal government's continued negligence when it comes to passing comprehensive immigration reform. The current administration's willingness to use uh, draconian manipulative measures to to stoke fear in immigrant communities and pit family members against one another is reprehensible. Our government must seek to be both just and compassionate regarding immigration policy, Especially in protecting dreamers and upholding longstanding laws regarding refugees f- uh, fleeing violence, lawlessness, and oppression. So that's a stronger statement, but I, but it's it's a good statement because again, it's just saying we're not doing right. We have to treat people with dignity and respect, just justice and compassion. You know, from that, and so you know you can go to the evangelical immigration table and sign that. And get five thousand. Hopefully, it'll start a discussion in Washington. Uh, But then as we get closer to the elections, the end campaigns, um, election statement is something I think that all evangelicals need to read. Both of those websites are evangelical. Yeah.
1: Well, as we wind down the episode for today, I'd I'd love to hear kind of what your final takeaways were from this last weekend. And if there's any, you know, you mentioned a couple action items to, to walk the talk and things that
2: we can do. Is there anything you'd like to, to add? Go ahead. Okay. Um, This is what I take. I mean, uh, I was in Texas in 2000, 2007, and um, I see a lot of churches going to the border uh, to ministry and bring the gospel. Uh, For those many years that I was in Texas, I saw a lot of churches, and I still heard a lot about churches doing their missions to to the border. And, um, but uh, it surprised me the way the other side of the border was, especially Juarez, the city. Uh, Pastor was mentioned about the buildings all destroyed, the streets, they were terrible. And uh, uh, I, was, uh, I was thinking of the Bible verse that I was giving uh, when I first started with um, uh, Jeremiah 29, uh, a project that we have in our church, and I'm going to read it. And it says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if He prospers, uh you will prosper. And that's kinda I, I don't know why was that Bible verse given to me to start this new ministry of Jeremiah 29 saying we're helping the homeless. But actually I was like, okay, I'm a stranger in this city. <laughs> and I see a lot of things going on. You know, I'm helping in this wealthy city in Franklin. But well, my people is suffering in Mexico and in El Paso. Now, go back to the churches that are going every single summer and ministry to people and seeing the city. There is something they're not doing right on the other side of the border. The churches are not doing something. They're doing something wrong. And this is what, what, this is my taking. I've been praying and thinking about the churches. Okay, if the churches are going to ministry people, they, they still have the power to ministry to the government, not only on this side, but on the other side. Ministry to them, present the gospel to them, and make a deal, okay, let's, let's, let's pray and work on both sides of the, of the border, in El Paso and Juarez. And then we start ministry to the cartel, why not? I mean, Mexico, I was surprised that Samuel was giving his testimony about how he challenged the cartel. You know, I know he he's stepped he's step away for 10 days, but he came back. I mean, cartel was still waiting for him. I, 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 I don't know what's, what was the end of the story, but he's still there. You
0: yeah, know? He, he's alive right now. He's, so al-
2: he's <laughs> alive and he's still in the same building. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a surprise for me that, I mean, pastors in Mexico are, are taking the risk. You know, they can be killed one day. The whole family can be killed by a cartel, but they trust in God. They faith. I mean, if the churches come from United States to cross the border in Mexico, and let's work with the government
0: and then work with cartel,
2: and I think this thing can fix, can can be fixed.
0: Yeah. Well, before I get to my takeaway, away, since he mentioned the cartel, one of the uh, nonprofit workers who you know is traveling back and forth all the time told me that uh, one of the untold stories that no one's really talking about and reporting about is the number of evangelical pastors in Mexico who have been killed by the cartel over the last few years. So if you say anything negative about the cartel, you know, or anything and about what they're doing, you, there's a good chance you could be killed. He said, but nobody wants to talk about that. And I can't remember, and he told me how many, but it, I can't remember, but it was, you know, more than dozens of pastors who have been killed. Um, and, uh, but no one... I've never heard that before, yeah. so you know that's one of the things I want to research, but for me, since i've been back' been thinking about and I think the one thing that had the biggest impact on me, <clears throat> and I, I was telling my wife about it, was um the one day that we walked um, along the the fence, you know, we were on the El Paso side, but we just walked along it, and the realization that uh you know here I am on this side of the fence, and uh it's a safe city. On the other side of the fence, it's, it looked like Honduras. It looked like a third world country uh, right there. And, you, and the, uh, the contrast was really, really stark. Um, but then the, the realization that, okay, I didn't do anything to be born on this side of the fence. You know, I could have just as easily been born on that side of the fence. Um, and depending on what side of the fence you're born on, your life is going to be drastically different. And, uh, you know, God's sovereignty or whatever you want to call it, I happened to be born on this side of the fence. Uh, but I could have just as easily been born on that side of the fence. And it's um, a moving fence it's, it's, a,
1: a, it's throughout history. It's like where did that yeah. border
0: line? on where, which side were you born? Yeah, yeah. And so, then, and so then the thought came, okay, I didn't do anything to earn this side of the fence. But now, um, you know, what's my responsibility to use the privilege that I was given uh, to help uh, the other side of the fence? Because you can't just say, well, that's just the way it is. You, that's just not an answer. You know, you, you can't just say, well, I'll let the government worry about that. Or I've got my own problems back home. No, no, no. You, you were born on this side of the fence, so that means you have privilege. Um, and, uh, and with privilege comes responsibility. So, so what can I do to try to help make a difference in what's going on uh, on the other side of the fence? So that's what really I took away. Now, action steps, uh, go to those websites that I mentioned earlier, again, uh, or just Google. Um, evangelical immigration table, and then the and campaign. Uh, but this was an exploratory trip for me, and so um, you know, I'm looking at trying to plan a trip in August because I hear um, the weather in August in the desert is just wonderful. So, you know, <laughs> yes, you know I've but the brochures. <laughs> the brochures are beautiful. <laughs> but um, you know, it so and it, again, it just be an exploratory trip for anybody who wants to go and experience kind of the same things that we did. There's the group will host us down there. And uh, they would like to have a minimum of six. In my mind, if I could get 10 or 12 to go, that would be a good-sized group to go. It probably be about a four-day trip, you know, and maybe over the weekend, like leave Friday, come back Monday. It's kind of over the weekend. Um, and uh, probably around 850 to to $1,000. That would include airfare, lodging, most of your meals uh, and everything. So if you're interested in that, contact me um, through Twitter, Um riggs underscore kevin and or send me an email kevin at org. find me on facebook and let me know that you're interested and if i can come up with six or seven people we can start moving in that direction because i hear again the weather in the desert in august it's just got to be great yes back
1: your sunscreen um <clears throat> well thank you Pastor Luis, for joining us.
2: Oh, thank It was you. a pleasure. We will yeah. do it again sometime. Oh, yes, please invite me. I know it, was, it was a pleasure. Yes, to be the first guest of your, of your show, your program. The honor
1: is all ours. Yeah, <laughs> thank you. Um, thank you, listeners, for tuning in. Uh, Pastor Kevin, any uh, teaser for the next episode?
0: Yeah, I think so. I think, um, unless things change, next episode will be a uh, look at a passage of scripture I've been just going over in my mind a whole lot in Deuteronomy 15 and talking about poverty. And uh, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting passage because at the beginning of the passage, God says, there should be no poor among you. Then in the passage, he says, there's always going to be poor with you. So how does that how yeah. does that work? Great.
1: All right. Well, once again, thank you for tuning in to Floods of Justice. Uh, we will see you on the next episode. Be sure to subscribe, tell your friends, uh, send us some questions, feedback. We'd love to hear from you, and we will see you in the next episode. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.